Hello. Hi. 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 Hello. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious I'm about. Curious about. I'm curious about building open, authentic, loving relationship. I'm curious about jealousy. I'm curious about polyamory. Does it just mean that you're fucking all the time? How can I tell my parents that my partner is already married? I'm curious about... How do you know when you're too busy to have another relationship? I'm curious about dominant and subordinate relationships. I'm curious about sexual health. How can relationships can evolve with people evolve as they grow and change? The desire to have our partners be the right amount of jealous of us, right? Mm -hmm. Or for us, right? That is a high desire, right? Welcome to the Curious Folks podcast for those challenging the status quo in love, sex, and relationships. My name is Effie Blue. And I'm Jacqueline Misla. And today we're talking about jealousy, particularly within non-monogamous relationships. Jealousy is a topic that comes up a lot when we are talking about relationships. And we've had previous guests that came on and talked about evolutionary perspectives, social conditioning, and the possible impacts of jealousy on relationships, but generally all within a monogamous lens. And while jealousy is universal, experienced to some degree by everyone, no matter their orientation or relationship construct, those in an open relationship experience some unique challenges and opportunities. No one knows this more than today's guest, who has been researching jealousy within non-monogamy. Hi, I'm Dr. Dolly Hamilton. I'm the coach for couples who color outside the lines. I have a PhD in Jungian and archetypal psychology, and I'm also an ASEX certified sex educator. A research psychologist, TEDx speaker, and best-selling author, Dr. Hamilton has spent the past two decades studying and reimagining love and relationships and identifying five steps for leveraging jealousy to create deeper, more sustainable connections. While our conversation will focus on the importance of research Dr. Hamilton has done with non-monogamous folks, like the conversation we had in our last episode about compersion with Dr. Marie Tuine, the lessons and impacts of jealousy and compersion are for everyone. Before we dive in, though, a quick reminder to share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it or benefit from it and to leave us a review wherever you're listening. We started our conversation with Dr. Hamilton by asking her why jealousy occurs. For me, jealousy is a triangle. Jealousy is about me, my beloved, whoever that beloved is, whoever I have a valued relationship with, and a perceived interrupter, someone, a human, a person, who I imagine or I have evidence of them potentially interrupting my love bond. So it's about a threat to a valued relationship at root. Mm. We've heard many definitions of jealousy. It's the first time it's been presented to us as a triangle, right? Jealousy is always a triangle. Always. Yeah. This is how we can easily identify the difference between jealousy and envy. Because envy is, is dyadic. Envy is, I long for what you have, or I long to be who you are. Jealousy is always a triangle. So if you can spot the triangle, we know jealousy is at work. And here's the thing. Envy often lurks inside of jealousy. Jealousy is a complex emotion. And if I feel that there's an interrupter, right, that third point on the triangle... I may compare myself to them, find myself wanting in some way. And now I'm caught in envy inside of this jealousy. Mm. 
That's a beautiful way of putting it because I, as you're saying that, that is exactly, I think, as a, my experience of it, of that layeredness around it, which I th- do think makes it much more complicated. So I appreciate you naming it that way, because if I'm thinking about the many moments in my multiple relationships where I have experienced jealousy, it is just that of seeing and experiencing their connection as a threat, but also seeing that I want what they have. I want that walk through Central Park. I want to go to the rooftop bar at night and and oversee the city and look at each other's eyes. Like I want those things. And there must be something special about your connection if you have that with that person and I don't. Right. And so when we have that layering, this is why it's so crucial to understand jealousy as a complex emotion. If we do, we can sort of pop the hood, right? Look inside. And if there's envy going on, well, envy can be, while it is terribly ugh to feel, it can be incredibly motivating. Perhaps I can use some of that envy as inspiration. Oh, I mean, envy, it's honest. It tells you what you want. Right. And so now I can move toward what I do want. I can turn toward creating the experiences I do want with my partner mm-hmm. and work on the self worth issues that come up for, I mean, humans. Self worth is yeah. one of our core psychological issues. So it gives us inspirational moments, but only if we allow ourselves to see it that way. It's really easy when jealousy shows up to instead imagine that the other person has to solve the problem for us. They Mm. need to stop doing something so that we stop feeling a certain way. Mm. Yes. That is, I think, another big point to make is that that is often the case. I am feeling uncomfortable, which clearly means now you need to do something differently. Exactly. And if only life were that simple, but if we're having mature adult relationships and I do not feel ownership over my own emotional states, I am right out of the gate. I'm a bit stuck. I am going to be struggling because I'm going to feel a sense of disempowerment when stuff happens and stuff is bound to happen no matter what your relationship structure. And so in my work, I tend to ground people in the idea that your emotional experiences are yours. You own them. And so you can start with doing somatic work, nervous system regulation. You can work on your agreements with yourself and your boundaries and your ability to be stable and create a secure base in yourself. And those things all empower us to then experience emotions from a place of active participation rather than the uh, passive, these are happening to me. Yeah. I want to pause there too, because I think I just had an aha moment, even in my own experience of that power dynamic, I don't think is something that I recognized of feeling powerlessness in giving power to someone else into their dynamic. And as a result of that, feeling the need to take control of the situation by then saying, this is what you can and cannot do and over-regulating it. And I don't think, I think that I defaulted certainly to, I need to control this, but I don't think that I connected the dots until this moment. It was because I felt so powerless in thinking that my, my power had been given away Yes. That now I felt the need and I need to take control of the situation. Yeah. Yeah. When we think about the roots of jealousy, right? Researchers, Sybil Hart, um, Hart and Carrington's work in particular points out that jealousy can be spotted in infants as young as five or six months old. So if you want to talk about helplessness, of course, power dynamics and helplessness would come up in jealousy. Because if you think about jealousy as a way to keep us connected to our primary caregiver, who is literally our source of life when we are infants, 
if it's for that to continually reinforce this bond, this beloved other is my source of life. Well, when I grow up, and if you follow attachment theory at all, I grow up and I transfer some of my attachment base to a romantic partner. It's completely possible. And we see all the time. And I have certainly felt myself more than a few times, gosh, just this week, even the fear and powerlessness of infancy can still exist in me. Absolutely. And so at that point, I have to engage all of my tools so that my somatic response can allow me to re-engage my prefrontal cortex and get into my logical brain and say, oh, wait, oh, wait, I am not a toddler. I am not an infant. Even though this feels threatening in the same way it did when I was young and powerless and helpless, now I have resources and now I can talk to my partner and ask for what I need. And those, when I'm doing my research, people who are able to engage that way with a bottom up protocol of like, I'm going to do the somatic work and then move toward my rational work, those people successfully navigate jealousy. I love that. The thing that I want to focus from here, which you brought us into nicely, is some of this research you mentioned about that we experience jealousy as young as five. And there are many other research done on the topic of jealousy. Uh, We spoke to Professor David Buss, who's been doing a lot of research on jealousy on the show. Um, But the thing that we keep coming up against is that most of the research is done with the dyad in mind in a mononormative, heteronormative point of view. Yet here we are, all members of the non-monogamous community, you know, have multiple partners, have had multiple partners. And anytime we look at that research, we find that there is just a piece missing that for some reason that research doesn't align with our experience, you know, and it doesn't have to, but I can't help but notice like there's something within the methodology of this research that just leaves me out. So it leaves us out, you yes. know, and I'm curious to, if you can speak to a little bit to that. And I know that your research is different. You're really looking at sort of broader relating styles. And I'd love to dig into that with you. Yeah. So let's go there. When someone's doing qualitative research, that's the way I research. Mm-hmm. I do it differently from somebody who's taking a quantitative approach. Now, much of the research that's out there, you know, most of Dr. Buss's research, it takes a quantitative approach. They want to ask questions that they can then count the answers to and then categorize people and categorize their answers. And that is helpful to get us some baseline information about broad swaths of people who fit into normative boxes. However, like you just said, I don't feel seen in that in those boxes. I am a queer, cisgender, white, privileged, polyamorous woman, right? There I am. And even I, with quite a lot of privilege, I don't fit into that box. And we know that somewhere between 5 and 20% of people have experienced consensual non-monogamy, not cheating, consensual, right? That's a lot of people to exclude. But then let's add on A lot of this research also posits a biological binary of sex. I'm a sex educator. Uh, I've studied the biology and I have biologist friends who are much better at this than I am who tell me that is just not true. (laughs) In fact, there is a reality of intersex. There is a reality of gonadal differences that are so much more complex than a binary would allow us to grasp. But then... Much of this research takes and breaks us down into very discrete categories, and then it asks us to do a forced choice answer. So first off, I have to check a box. Am I male or female? 
So if I don't fit, what do I do? Mm-hmm. Right off the bat, do I just get excluded? Then we move down a little bit, move into, imagine I pick and I say, okay, well, okay, I'll, I'll just pick female. Now I move down into the questions and I start answering questions about my relationship style and what I feel bad about. Would I feel worse if my partner was fucking someone else or would I feel worse if they were holding hands and walking down the street? Mm-hmm. Well, what if neither of those makes me feel particularly bad? What if I have experience doing both of those things and they actually are lovely and generative for me, but I still have to pick pick a box? Mm-hmm. How accurate is this research for a diverse population? Mm-hmm. If I don't fit into boxes, then I'm probably not going to feel covered. And that's what I find when I do my literature reviews for my own work. What I'm often looking at is a lot of studies, lots and lots and lots of studies that divide the world up like that. Hmm. And I know that when we do that, we leave out some really important stories because the stories of difference, the stories of not the norm, those Hmm. are the stories that could potentially leapfrog us forward into a new reality. Hmm. And if we don't count those in our research, what are we really doing? Yeah, for sure. I also think that because that is what we are seeing, then those of us who are not included in that research believe that we actually do need to fit into one of those two boxes. And so I'm sure then if at some point we are asked what our dynamic is, we may be less likely to self-report some deviation to what we're researching. And so it further just puts us in these buckets because we, it just continues to reinforce, this is what people are saying is true. So if it, one of those things must be true for me, and if not, then there's something wrong with me, which the irony right. of course is jealousy is one of the most popular conversational topics within the non-monogamous world. Mm. And yet all of the research that we're finding about it has to do with monogamous relationships. Right. And, and what do we do if we've had a thumb put over our whole being? What do we do? For me, the only thing to do was go join the research community. That, like, that, that was my solution. Like, okay, I'm going to go be in there. Yeah, there yeah. is research being done from this perspective, but, you know, it's a smaller body. And it tends to be of a more qualitative nature because, for instance, I go into the lived experience of non-monogamous people's jealousy. I I go deeply and then expand from there. So I look in an idiosyncratic way. I go, what is this? What's special about this? What's different? And then from there, I wonder into what could that mean about jealousy? How Mm. might that have me look at some of the data, some of the quantitative data differently? What questions might I ask differently if I understand how a a non-monogamous person works with jealousy? If I can pose a new question, I can get a different answer. The, mm-hmm. the problem with research, the biggest problem with research is the question we ask determines the range of answers we can get. Mm-hmm. We got to ask better questions. Right, right. I mean, that not that what they say? If you can just define the problem, uh, the solution will present itself. So in the way that we define yeah. the problem, we ultimately stumble into the only only possible solution. But if we were to define the question differently, we might end up with a different solution or at least have maybe multiple solutions. So that that makes so much sense to me. Can we go there? I'm, I'm really curious about your research and how you are seeing, looking at the polyamorous population. What are the differences or even similarities or, or maybe not even a comparison? What are the discoveries, like new brand new discoveries that you're coming up with in your research in jealousy with the non-monogamous folks? Yeah. So I think right now I am actually doing a comparative study. So I'm, I'm right now repeating, um, and I did a study on jealousy in polyamorous individuals. So I was specifically speaking to individuals, not couples, not people who are 
in a, mm-hmm. a polycule. But now I'm repeating that with monogamous people. So I do have some comparison. But here's what's interesting to me is the ideas, the newness, the um, what is revolutionary about jealousy in my polyamorous studies is generally not terribly revolutionary if you've been non-monogamous a long time. There are things that we know from inside the experience. So I've been non-monogamous for a long time. From inside it, yeah, they do make sense. But when I do the comparative studies, a lot of things have started to pop out. One of the primary differences is, do you have a language for jealousy? Bottom line, do you understand what jealousy is at root? Could you define it? Could you give me an example of it? Can you differentiate it from envy? Do you understand that it is a complex emotion made of other emotions? And then if you had all that, which almost all of my polyamorous sample did, if you had that, what do you do when it shows up? The next difference that showed up in the research was that I talk about it. It's normal to talk about it. It's normal to talk about it, yes, in a relationship, but not just in a relationship, also in a community. It's also normal to to be able to turn to the internet and say, I'm in a polyamorous triad and I'm feeling jealous. And for there to be answers that float to the top that are generative and do not just instantly toss my relationship into the garbage heap because it doesn't fit the norms. And so what I find is that the people who have language and have space to talk about jealousy as if it's normal and addressable, they deal with it more reasonably. It like inside themselves, it does not consume them in the same way. However, we have to have the conversation. Somebody has to start the conversation. Mm-hmm. And jealousy can also come with a lot of shame. And so what I've noticed is that in some parts of my research, there are very clear threads of shame. And that can show up in both monogamous and polyamorous samples because if you can just think back it, so jealousy can be spotted as young as five or six months old. So if you think back to when you're a little kid, start thinking about like toddlerhood, you start being told to share and to be good, right? So you get these ideas that we we need to share our parents' affection, we need to share our toys. And then you grow up and imagine you become a non-monogamous person and you're out there. And again, sharing is sort of a forefront value, right? And there's this idea of being good at this, good at sharing and wanting larger community and wanting compersion. And so all of those things that are generally pro-social behaviors that we're trying to reinforce can also go into a shame bucket. And so folks who struggle with the shame of jealousy also seem to struggle with finding solutions for themselves that they can act on regularly. Mm-hmm. I think in my mind, I'm going back and forth around whether within non-monogamous communities, folks feel more or less shame than in monogamous communities. Because I imagine for myself, I think I have felt both where I felt, well, of course I'm jealous. Like th- this dynamic is, is going to bring that in. But then I've also felt, well, to be ninja level poly, it's just compersion all over the place. And, and any jealousy is something that I need to work through in silence because I've signed up for this thing. And so just wondering in, in your research, if you what you have found about shame within non-monogamous communities. Yeah, I didn't realize I was going to have to go so deeply into shame when I did this originally, but it right away jumped off the page at me because when people described shame, they didn't say, I feel ashamed. 
they gave me clues and signals, you know, they, they withdrew, mm. their bodies would close up or they would, their voice would drop down and they wouldn't want to say, or they would say, I really don't want to talk about, I, I really don't want to say this part, but here's what I did. And what I found interesting too, is that it wasn't like there was all or nothing. Some people felt that in their non-monogamous community, in their polycules in their families. It was completely normal to talk about jealousy. And so they felt safe and they didn't feel shame. Others felt immense pressure to be compersive and to transform their jealousy into Mm -hmm. compersion, which I do not recommend trying to do. Mm -hmm. And those people struggled a lot with layers, that layering now, because now I have to hide and anything that we have to hide immediately becomes good fodder for shame. Mm -hmm. So it really depends a lot on the microcosms you find yourself in and Mm -hmm. what reading material you choose, what podcasts you choose to listen to, because some really stay focused on the idea that jealousy is a negative emotion. And hey, the APA agrees. The APA Mm -hmm. says jealousy is a negative affective state, but it doesn't say that about anger says anger is a healthy emotion. Fascinating. Okay. That's fascinating. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So if we are in a microcosm that tells us that jealousy is bad, and then we're likely to feel shame, at which point we're likely to start hiding it. So this could even just start at the beginning of your non-monogamous journey and then just become sort of a kernel of shame that can collect more Mm and more evidence of like, oh, I'm bad at this. I'm bad at this. When really people who are non-monogamous, who can own their jealousy, understand that it has a purpose or at least had a purpose, and then figure out what they want to do with that. Those people are in a good position to de-shame, de-stigmatize, and to do that for their community too, not just for themselves, but to broaden their community. The thing that came up with me for me I love the, the question you asked, Jackie, about shame within the poly community, because there's definitely that rhetoric around polyer than thou. Like, I don't feel jealousy. I don't. It's compersion all over the place. Puppy dogs and rainbows, which, you know, it should also be called into question. What I've also noticed is these two extremes within the people that I work with, which are mostly people who are curious about or transitioning into non-monogamy, which one side, either they feel shame about feeling uh, jealousy and kind of saying like, it, they do feel shame and they want to hide it and, and and feel guilty, shame, weakness around it. That's kind of what they associate with it. And then I have the hard the other side of people who are so like they use jealousy as the thing that they cannot get over to then open up. They're just like, I'm too jealous. I'm a jealous person. You know, they're, they're pr- loud and proud about their jealousy. And it is the reason they dig their heels in and like not interested in any kind of exploration, which is fine, by the way. You don't have to explore anything you don't want to. But just seeing how jealousy comes up as a pawn, if you will, and as we navigate all these kind of relationship waters. Yeah. We have a paradoxical relationship with jealousy culturally, not just as far as I understand, this is, this may be universal because I have, I have asked a lot of people from a lot of different places and the desire to have our partners be the right amount of jealous of us, right? Mm -hmm. Or for us, right? That is a high desire, right? And Dr. Maya Angelou has this beautiful quote that I think sums it up way better than I ever could. Um, She said, jealousy in love, in romance is like salt in food. A little bit enhances the savor, too much spoils the dish. 
Mm. Yes. yes. That, right? We want that just right amount, except here's the thing. We all have a different just right amount, just like we do right. for salt, right? Like we yes. all want it to right. be just the, the right amount of saltiness. And then we have to think about what does that mean? Because now I start placing judgments on what is the right amount, great big air quotes around that. What's the right amount? And what's the right way for jealousy to be expressed? Because some people, yeah, they use jealousy as a defense, but some people also just have no idea about what a healthy expression of jealousy might look like. Mm -hmm. And we don't really talk about it very much. So let's talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, can can we talk about that? What does a healthy expression of, of jealousy look like? Because I can name many ways in which I did not do it in a healthy way. So I love Me too. some Me alternatives. Too. <laughs> the people who I have worked with and the people who, because I work with individuals who are going through this and I do my research studies. And the people who understand that jealousy is an invitation to doing their own inner work, right? So going way back and doing their inner child work and going and doing their somatic, like the trauma stuck in their body work and doing the work of growing their relationship skills. The people who are like, oh, jealousy means that I have an opportunity. They tend to be able to move into a, a place of talking about jealousy as a neutral experience that's happening and that they want to work with, keeping themselves in a growth mindset of, well, maybe I don't know how to respond well to it in the moment. So what will I do? A healthy expression of jealousy for one person might be taking a pause and saying, I'm overwhelmed right now with my jealousy. I'm going to go and deal with that myself for 45 minutes. I'm going to come back. And I would love when I come back for you to be prepared to reassure me, right? just being able to clearly name. But in order to do that, we need to have a plan. Most people don't have an actual plan for dealing with jealousy. I ask people to actually write it down and make it small enough. You can fit it on a sticky note. What's your plan? What are you going to do? Because when jealousy comes up, it does, it cuts off access to your prefrontal cortex. You are now in limbic system and you, you're being asked one question by your nervous system. Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? And the answer, it appears to be no. So we need to do something that's right for us to create an opportunity for us to then express our jealousy in a way that actually invites intimacy. Because that's what jealousy really is. It's an invitation to increase intimacy if we handle it well. It also feels crappy when it happens. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, barf. Just so many dots connected for me. And I think the clarity that popped up for me is this that jealousy is essentially about fear and fear is essentially about survival system. And I think we don't make that connection clearly enough. People aren't as clear about it. And because of the shame and the stigma and the, the noise, what we call the noise around it, when you put it that way, I'm like, oh, that's so simple. You feel jealous because you're afraid. Like we, we define jealousy as you fear, real or perceived threat, right? (laughs) Threat equals fear, fear. Now I'm in a survival system. I'm in my fight, flight, freeze, fawn, strategy and that is what jealousy then looks like for me right and then now you've actually taken jealousy out of stigma but more towards how we deal with fear which is much easier to digest a thing has less stigma less weight you know we talk to children about like when you're afraid like do these things so i love that i love that i think it's such a such a holistic way of looking at it 
Yes. Yeah, that's it. So I research jealousy from an archetypal perspective. Archetypal simply means that it's a universal pattern of human behavior. We can spot jealousy like every ancient mythology, all of our old languages start to have this this word for jealousy, right? Very early. So we know it's been around for a long time. We know that it describes something that causes big upset in our world. And so it really helps if we can define it in a way that destigmatizes it. But it also helps to recognize if it's that old, yeah, of course it's connected to fear, right? If, if something goes all the way back. And to the evolutionary psychologist's point, sure, absolutely. I love using that as a ground base. Like, sure, as an adaptive strategy, it makes sense for me to stay connected, not just to a, a partner who can provide me resources. I mean, sure. But honestly... What about staying connected to my parent who's nourishing me with their very body, right? Like that's important too. So sibling rivalry is another form of jealousy. Since we know it's old, and if we do, if we destigmatize it by remembering it's about fear, now we have tools for working with fear. And now we also have the opportunity to see that it's possible to transition something that's that was fearful into something that isn't. Like I can have a fear of spiders that I then work through. We know that. Fear can be changed. Um, jealousy still exists in my life, but I work with it differently. So it is no, I don't get scared of my jealousy. I sometimes get scared in my jealousy. I am frightened that my love bond will be interrupted, but I'm not scared of jealousy. And many people are scared of jealousy on top of the fear that's happening. So we have leverage though. That's what that means. We, we have a place to work. I love the idea of having a plan that fits on a post-it. I think that's brilliant. I mean, I still have this. I still have a post-it with my quick plan. And without that, it is, of course, we get pulled into patterns. Patterns are patterns for a reason. They're efficient. Our neural pathways are well-worn. So in order to disrupt that and lay down new, you know, new myelin to make that, make a new pattern flow, we need to make it as simple as possible. And one of the things I do is I like to have a, a trigger, right? So if then, right? So if my partner is having an, another contact, right? I don't even make it about a date. If my partner's having another contact, then I will do this, these three things. They're really simple. They take me like two minutes, but if then helps me do this and start to re-regulate even before I've been able to name jealousy. Even like, cause that's important. You just named in my research, there were five things that people, polyamorous in individuals did if they were, when they were navigating jealousy with ease. And the first one was naming jealousy. They were able to name it. They were able to name it. And then notice they, they did that by noticing the sensations in their body, right? So they noticed the sensations in their body that are jealousy for them. So do you notice jealousy as a, as something in your stomach, your, in your chest? Do you notice heat or weight? What does it feel like? Does it crinkle? Does it twist? Does it constrict? Does it get all electric? What happens? Start to notice that. And I'll have people write that down too. Like, okay, another post-it note. What are, the, what are the exact body symptoms that I get in jealousy? And if I notice those, then I can name it. Say, oh, I'm having these symptoms. Oh, am I jealous? Oh, yep, look, there's jealousy. Now I can put into place my plan. And all that can happen in the span of just a few seconds. What are the other four? Now I'm curious. Yeah. So the first is noticing the sensations, right? And then, and that shifts into naming. And then from naming, 
there's a, a deeper step. The, the third step is about the narrative. What's the narrative I have about jealousy? What does, what does the jealousy mean for me? What does this action mean that my partner's taking? The story you created, the story you told yourself about what you're seeing, what it means and what it will portend for your future. And some people have really, really painful narratives of jealousy and some people have pretty easeful ones. The more easeful and the more tenderly you can hold that with like, I don't know this to be true. This is the story I'm telling myself. If we can use that that technique of this is the story I'm telling myself. And what's my evidence? Oh, I have none. Huh. Okay. Now we can move to step four, which is about navigating your needs. Navigating your needs is really, I mean, it is poly skills 101. Do I know what it is I need? Do I know whether I need this thing to be met in a specific way? And if I do, that's a want. Do I really have to have this need met in this exact specific way? And if I name those needs and I creatively figure out with partners how to meet them, then I am empowered in my relationship and I'm empowering my partner too to help me. I'm like inviting them. I'm welcoming them, helping me by by working with me on getting my needs met, which doesn't mean that they have to be my need feeling machine but we can work to creatively solve. How do we, how do, we do this? Yeah. But I do want to name the fifth step because that's the one that non-monogamous people are like, cool, great. How do I get it? It's nurturing compersion. Mm-hmm. And you know what compersion is. And I know what compersion is. I know that I hold it as just joy for my partner's joy, joy for another's joy. But figuring out what to do to actually nurture that is not simple. And what I what I have found is many people ask me how they can change their jealousy into compersion or even more frequently. I'll have people say, why can't my partner just change their jealousy into compersion? Why can't they just feel compersion? And as soon as I hear that, when somebody says, I want to turn jealousy into compersion, I'm like, nope, stop. Just full stop. Stop. Jealousy is not the raw material of compersion. It's not. Jealousy stands on its own right. Compersion's Raw material is joy. Mm-hmm. If we want to nurture compersion, we need to foster joy. And I think Dr. Marie Tuin's work is like some of the best out there for understanding the factors that will increase compersion. So her work picks up really right where mine leaves off. Like, cool, when we work with jealousy, let jealousy be what it is because it can sit right next to compersion. Mm-hmm. At the same time, in the same circumstances. And if we allow that to be true, then we can be at peace with the fact that our jealousy doesn't mean that we are bad, right? And and I could also foster some compersion and I could stand in that squishy space of, wow, I'm really happy for my partner. And I'm and I'm happy for me being happy for my partner. And I'm still dealing with the fear, anger, sadness, all the stuff that comes with my jealousy. Mm-hmm. That makes so much sense, right? Because jealousy is about fear, as we discussed earlier. And that means you're in your fight or flight. And that's not where joy lives. For jealousy, you're in an entirely different state of mind. Your neurology is different. Your probably your blood pressure is different. Like everything about you is different when you're experiencing jealousy because it is assigned to a survival system, right? And compersion yes. lives in the area that you thrive, right? It's where joy lives. So you can't really turn something that lives in an entirely different part of your brain into 
you know, into the other thing. And it also allows for both of those things to, to exist at the same time. One is them kind of an activated amygdala and the other one is the reasonable frontal lobe. And we, we know that we can switch in between the two, right? I mean, it's not at the same time. We can go back and forth, you know, in between yeah. the two. And and also it depends how I'm feeling. Like if I'm feeling particularly tender, I'm probably going to allow my amygdala sort of rule. And then if I'm feeling a little better about myself, then I'm just going to be able to sort of rise above it a lot easier. So I think I love what you're saying about the aim of the game is not to try to transform one feeling into another, but to like allow and allocate space for both and check in with yourself to see like what else is going on with you when you're experiencing that compersion and jealousy. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I, I like that you, you notice that like we have to switch our, you know, our brains operate in such a way that we have to then switch. And so when we're exhausted, when we're tired, we might be in a state where we theoretically can hold both of these emotions, but we're just too tired to really swap back and forth. And so at that point, my options are more limited, right? And so that's why it's important to have a really clear, small, (laughs) defined set of steps I can take. And if somebody wants to nourish compersion. They really want to build it in their life. I want to remind them that that's great and it's not required, but with jealousy, it is required that in order to in order to be in community and this actually I don't think this is about non-monogamy. In order to be in community and connection with others, I do need to be able to manage feelings of jealousy because Jealousy, again, complex emotion made of fear, right? And then the very next thing that people the most frequently used word attached to jealousy, anger. So if I can't manage fear and anger, and then we'll go down the list, sadness, and all, then there's a, you know, a whole list and we could break all fear, anger, and sadness into all its, those um, more gentle emotions, like, like anxiety versus fear or a little maudlin versus sadness, right? If I can just deal with those using other tools, now all my relationships get better. Because mm-hmm. when I apply the tools to anger, then I don't get, go off in a, in a mad rage, right? Sure. So we know we need to do that. And we usually have some skills to do that. We just forget that jealousy doesn't give us an excuse, right? Mm-hmm. It's not actually an excuse for acting out our, right. our anger. Yeah. And it's like, we, we want to be regulated, right? And when you're je- when we're yeah. jealous, we are dysregulated. And I, I love what you're saying also about, we don't necessarily, it's not imperative that we cultivate compersion, but it is somewhat imperative for the, our quality of lives and being a part of society that we are regulated humans just for our own good, first and foremost. And I think we can talk about being in regulation. We can talk about it in terms of polyvagal theory, being in rest and digest, or I like calling it stay and play, right? So there's so many theories out there that are kind of just reinforcing this idea that it's not bad it's just dysregulated and you need to just get back to a regulated state so you can operate from a place that isn't entirely cortisol, cortisol driven, you know? Yeah. And doing that, having specific tools to re-regulate is a game changer, right? Like I trained in neurosomatic intelligence specifically because I wanted to have a very clear framework. I work with a lot of very analytical types. I work with a lot of high level thinkers, which is great. They still have bodies, I don't always love that that's true about me either. And we do have to learn the skills of regulation because darn it, my brain still needs this body to walk around the world. And when I think about just being in community and being able to self-regulate, I know that I, I am being the person I want to be. 
right? So having those skills is always a win. I find that people need really efficient tools to deal with regulation because not everybody has an hour to go meditate. So I try to come up with really, really efficient tools to get us back out of that activated state so that jealousy can then be dealt with in a practical manner. Mm -hmm. And realistically, when you're new to this, it is frequently a bigger deal. Like often it takes years to learn how to do this with flexibility. And I don't, I don't know that it ever goes away for most of us. You might be a low jealousy person. Great. Awesome. But you're not dead yet. Who knows what could happen? Mm -hmm. We all need to have the skill set for it. And I don't know, we shouldn't forget that until very recently, jealousy was a reasonable (laughs) excuse for grievous bodily harm and murder Mm -hmm. in some Mm -hmm. states. I think it was still used as a defense. It was either 77 or 82 in Texas, Mm -hmm. still able to be used as a defense for Mm -hmm. harm. So Mm -hmm. of course we need to actually deal with jealousy. We need to, because we cannot allow jealousy to be an excuse for anger. Because that's ridiculous. Like we want to talk about using an emotion poorly. It would be that. What I'm hearing that continues to connect the dots for me is that idea that the the threat that you're feeling needs to be reduced in order for then you to be feel re-regulated and to, and to be able to pivot into compersion or just into to kind of baseline. And what I what I'm thinking as you're saying that is that my tendency either if I'm feeling that threat is either to act out or to push it down. Yeah. And I think that's really helpful for me is recognizing my own pattern of either acting out or pushing it down. I'll do it or you do it. And instead trying to pivot to a place of partnership and dialogue, this is something that I'm feeling because of the dynamic that we've chosen. And so let's work through this together. Mm. Yeah. You're, I mean, you're describing the, di- the difference between power with or power over too, mm. right? Am I in power? Are we together? exercising whatever resources we have, each of us, to collaborate on creative solutions? Or am I imagining that I have to, and when I use power, I'm using it like control. Am I, and am I mm-hmm. trying to force this to happen and imagining that there's a wall, actually a barrier or a, a already a slice through the rope that connects me to my partner. I'm imagining that there is no connection and I go into this place of force and control and that requires so much more resourcing. Like it's, it's fast, but it, it's inefficient, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. actually get us where we want to go. Mm-hmm. If I move into a state of rest and digest, if I move into, and I love stay and play, love mm-hmm. that. If I move mm-hmm. into that and I collaborate with my partner, I have exponentially increased access to resource, right? Because now mm-hmm. I'm more resourced My partner is feeling safe to collaborate with me. Mm -hmm. So they feel more resourced. And now it's, it's me times them, not me, not me plus them. Even it's, we actually have just Mm -hmm. elevated the tools that we have at our disposal right now. Mm. That being so true. And and the other thing that I just quick, quick side note, something that you said earlier about, you know, some people are low jealousy and I've definitely heard people say they they don't experience jealousy. And the thing that comes up for me when I hear that is, is that true or is that masked by an avoidant attachment style, right? You just don't. The reason why you don't bing, feel bing, jealousy, bing. right? You don't feel jealousy yeah. is because you, you're not going that. Like if you need a significant threat to a significant relationship to feel 
jealousy. And if you take the significant part out of a relationship, you keep relationships at an arm's length at all times, then that's probably why it doesn't equal equal to jealousy for you because you're not necessarily feeling you're not allowing yourself to have the intimacy, which then will call that relationship a significant relationship, right? Right. I would refine that even further to say, I think that there is a wide range of the amount of jealousy somebody finds standard and also how they express it. Some people mm-hmm. sort of naturally express jealousy in more in more reasonable ways. Um, I happen to be married to one of those people. I'm really lucky. It's almost <laughs> annoying how well he <laughs> manages to express jealousy. But... Also, yeah, he has an attachment style that is definitely avoidant, and that allowed him in many relationships to to do that. So I had an up-close experience of, oh, wait, now as he and I became closer and closer and he developed a true attachment, jealousy appeared. Mm-hmm. Now, he was luckily still... A, I mean, he was also married to a jealousy researcher, so he was <laughs> put in the position to practice what, we, what I preach, so to speak, but also... Like he was equipped to practice those things because he had he had been paying attention to jealousy and paying attention to how it felt in his body. And it was really just the transition from the statement, I don't feel jealous, to saying, jealousy's not a big driver for me, but when I feel relationship ick, let me look and see what's going on. And a lot of times the feelings that are going on are fear, anger sadness. Oh wait, that looks suspicious. What are the what's the fear about? Oh, it's actually about oh crap. <laughs> it's actually my fear. Found it. Me oh, will it's be me. Me. Yeah. <laughs> it's me. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It is and it's funny when we're not in a jealous state. It is funny to go back and look at our earlier selves and say, "Oh, of course. That was jealousy." But in the moment, for many, many reasons, including internalized shame, external shame, you know, shame being put on us, all of the, all of the ways that we might have masked this, it is really easy to say, I'm just angry or I'm just sad or I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just scared. I'm just scared. And it's reasonable. This fear is reasonable and make a huge list of reasons why this fear is reasonable. And I say yes to all of that. And let's take the word just out of there and say, if this is present, what if you were jealous? What if you were? That's that's my my go-to move. So I encourage people to let jealousy be part of the story and to always know that they can reclaim it. The jealousy mm-hmm. is my feeling. It's mine. I get to work with it. Even if my partner isn't ready or prepared, I still get to work with my feeling. Mm-hmm. I am not at the mercy of jealousy. I think that just makes a lot of sense. I love everything you're saying, basically. Um, The thing that came up is everything that you're saying, as polyfolk, we just get more opportunities to practice. I think that's the other big difference. I think it's the same process for people in monogamous relationships, but because it doesn't come up as often, the opportunities don't come up as often. And I should say traditional opportunities, right? You don't get to practice this processing framework when you're in a monogamous relationship, like it maybe comes up in these like big chunks, but it is not this continuous cycle of, oh, here it is again. And let's just like go through the process. Here it is again. And what I have found people say to me all the time, well, you don't, you don't get jealous. I do. I just process it fast because I've done it a million, right. million times, but I do. It hurts. It's shitty. I feel it every bit of it. I feel it in a pit in my stomach. I feel it in my jaw. Like I know it 
it's familiar. I feel it. I promise you, I feel it deeply and wholly. I have just processed it enough that I just, I'm able to get through it faster. That rings 100% true to me because when I was, well, and I continue to have so many conversations with people who've been non-monogamous for, for a range of times. And it stands out to me that there are a few different ways that people talk about jealousy. There's the honeymoon phase where I'm like, oh, jealousy is not really a problem for me. And then there's the, oh my God, what is this hell? And then there's, I've processed this. I have tools. I have a protocol. We have understandings. And I understand that in fact, an emotion is not going to kill me. So I can tolerate it. And I mean, it's not coincidence that the longer someone has been in their non-monogamy and practicing the tools, because you can be in your non-monogamy and not practicing the tools, the longer you've been practicing the tools, the better it goes. And for some people that takes decades because I have, I've worked with people who come to me in their sixth or seventh year, but they haven't even gotten to the stage of being able to name jealousy yet. So I don't care how polyamorous you are. If you haven't named it, I promise you it's somewhere running something because even if it's not you, it's running somebody in your polycule. It's running something and it's running in the dating world. So it's out there. We all have to practice it. And you're a great example, Effie. Like once you make it something you can do efficiently, it doesn't have to ruin as much of your day. Awesome. (laughs) That's maybe the best case scenario. (laughs) And you know, There's something else that we didn't talk about at all that turned up in my research that I feel like we should mention. Sure. Some people, um, in my first study, obviously these are qualitative studies, they're very small numbers, but 30% of my first study found jealousy arousing, sexually arousing. Mm -hmm. Yes, I would be a part of that 30%, which makes it much more complicated, actually. (laughs) Me too, right? And so I find it sexually arousing and I have to remind myself that that can be a tool that I leverage. So I was, I was interviewed in a, in an article about this. And so there is a story about me and what I do when jealousy is overwhelming and it involves a lot of sexual pleasure. And for me, that works. It won't work for everyone, but there are so many more tools than most of us imagine for working with jealousy. And so no matter how your jealousy looks, whatever clothes it wears, I I really think that if we just start having these conversations on a regular basis from a creative perspective, like what might we do now? And we start experimenting. That's what I do. Experiment. Let's see what could move this. Let's see how I can move back into connection, how I can experience some joy again. Like there are so many different ways that people do this effectively. It's So even though that framework was like five steps... Those five steps can look a million, million ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And thank you for naming that because when I, I do experience the same thing where I experience jealousy as a turn on. And when I first started to experience it, it was a complete mind fuck because yeah. here I am terrified and turned on and I didn't know what to do with that. And I never heard people talking about it at the time. And so I felt like it was just this very strange dysfunction, like these this glitch in my brain that we're connecting these two wires that shouldn't be connected. And so then I would leverage it, but then feel shame around it. It was just all mixed up. And so I appreciate you. you You're totally normal. The podcast and, in your, <laughs> and in your research. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. You're totally normal. And I think this is an area where we, there's a lot of potential. So we should keep talking about that. Yes, I agree. 
This is one of those episodes that number one, I need to listen to afterwards with a notebook and pen because you have been able to connect so many dots of different things that have been, that we have been digging into that feel important to us that we're trying to figure out ourselves. And so I'm sitting in it now and, and like need a moment and then need to come back to it and revisit this conversation and listen again and take notes really deeply appreciative for your the work that you're doing and normalizing some things that aren't talked about, pushing back on some of the research that exists already. Um, yeah, just a lot of gratitude. Thank you. Mm, I really appreciate your, your words. Thank you. Before we let you go, if we would just love to ask you four questions just to get to know you a little bit better. Um, sure. And then then after that, we are going to schedule you for another conversation. <laughs> that is the order of operations. We're going to ask you this question awesome. and then we're going to end the podcast and then we're going to get on our calendars and schedule you again. Um, the first question that we have for you is what is one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self about love, sex or relationships? I would start right off with your normal like you're you're normal and it's this piece of advice i give most frequently as a sex educator you're normal and now you just need to go find places where you can have conversations that allow you to define yourself as you are and normalize your reality that made me feel emotional oh <laughs> yeah no it's true that's what we try to do here so yeah okay so what is one romantic or sexual adventure on your bucket list? Oh, I have been meaning for years now to get to like desire or odyssey and I still haven't done it. And then the pandemic, I was, I was in my doctoral program and I kept putting it off. And then I was in a pandemic and that didn't happen. And damn it, if this doesn't happen soon, like something's going down. Like if that doesn't happen, I need to arrange a giant orgy just right here on my own property. Cause <laughs> yes. I love, I love the premise of all that juicy energy and I just want to go soak in it. Yes. I love that. Well, I don't know if you know, but Effie wrote the book on play parties, play party etiquette. So if you host something, <laughs> I suggest you get the That's book, it. give it to I your guests in advance. Yeah. That's it. So Reading that material. It's, a, it's just a book club. It's a book club exactly. with an activity <laughs> afterwards. Exactly. And what I like, I like that. I like that. Like, it's fine. Yeah. This is just, it's a, it's a True. book club with a charcuterie board and everything. It's all sure. good. It's all That's good. Brilliant. People don't That's realize brilliant. like throughout the day, you get a lot of workshops and seminars. People don't realize like the whole like nerdy educational piece of these like weekend long um, orgies. And it's all true. It's all true. They're great. Um, okay. So self-evident perhaps, but interested in your answer around how do you challenge the status quo? Yeah, I am here to make sure that people not only move jealousy into a neutral position, but really challenge their understanding of their responsibility for jealousy and not allow themselves to accept simple answers. I want to be in the question of what do we do with jealousy individually so that culturally, socially, jealousy can be utilized for what it's good for and managed for what it's pretty destructive about. Excellent. So the message is stay curious about jealousy. Yeah. I approve this message. <laughs> curious folks, approves this message. <laughs> Beautiful. Okay. Um, last but not least, we are a curious bunch around here and we are always curious about what people are curious about. So tell us, what are you curious about lately? Lately, I've been really diving into the 
bottom-up approach to dealing with our nervous system. And that has been incredibly fruitful. And I'm 46 years old, and this is, I was late to the game with my body. So I had a lot of reasons that that's true. Some of them traumatic, some of them just, I happen to be a, a cerebral type, right? But learning some methods that allowed me to feel welcome into the community of people of somatics, right? I have found the somatics world to be incredibly exclusionary up till now. So lately I've been really curious and that curiosity has turned into community around that. And that feels delicious and has my whole body working differently because when I learn in community, I feel different. So Mm -hmm. that's been my big curiosity. Here, here. Here. You're amongst also brainy people. So we really do understand. Yes. We that has yes. been a life journey, I think, for particularly for Effie and I in my 40s now is to connect with my body. Yeah. Never too late. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hamilton. Thank you so much. Thank you so really much. Really appreciate you. Such a good conversation. Thank you for having me. For more information on Dr. Jolie Hamilton and to get free ebooks on jealousy, reigniting your sex life, getting what you need from your relationships, and more visit her website, listentojolie.com. You can hear her and her anchor partner, Ken, on their podcast, Playing With Fire, or you can visit her on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Jolie underscore Hamilton. If you want to share your experience with jealousy, ask for resources and connect with other Foxy listeners, head to Facebook and join our Facebook group at We Are Curious Foxes. You can also jump onto Patreon at We Are Curious Foxes to hear the embarrassing jealousy story that I shared on a previous episode about an instance that left me creeping outside the window of a restaurant while my wife was on a date. To hear that Patreon extra and to find many episodes and after our conversations and over 50 videos from educator-led workshops, you got to go to Patreon at We Are Curious Foxes. And did you know that we have a jealousy and compersion section on our website? Visit us at wearecuriousfoxes.com to find podcast episodes, blog posts, book recommendations that give you the resources that you need to navigate through jealousy and find the lessons that can help you get to know yourself and your partners better. If you enjoy our episodes, we would love for you to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or to follow us on Spotify and Stitcher. This tells the podcast guides that this content matters. And extra bonus points if you rate the show and leave a comment so that others know the kind of impact that the show has had on you and your relationships. And finally, let us know that you're listening by sharing a comment, story, or question. You can email us or send us a voice memo to listening at wearecuriousfoxes.com, or you can record a question for the show by calling us at 646-450-9079. This episode is produced by Effie Blue and Jacqueline Misla, with help from Yamur Arkishi. Our editor is Nina Pollock, with whom we have the most significant relationship. Our intro music is composed by Dev Saha. We are so grateful for their work, and we're grateful to you for listening. As always, stay curious, friends. And leave us a review. When it w- to hear the embarrassing jelly, oh, jelly, 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 I'm jelly. I think that's a thing, right? That is a thing. Say that. Okay, you ready? Yes, we are recording as well. Um, Beautiful. Before I'm starting. Please hold. I'm stopping. Curious Fox podcast is not and will never be the final word on any topic. 
We solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind, and we'll look forward to your feedback. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious. 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 Stay curious.